0: visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.
1: Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner We'll discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Good day and welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is an exciting day today on our show because we do this topic. Uh, several times a year, and it's always a popular one, an incredibly important one. We have again in our studio constitutional law professor Michael Cohen, who's also an attorney with the international law firm of Shepard Mullen. And we are going to talk about the new Supreme Court term that starts this coming week. Michael, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, it's great to be here, Mitch. Yeah, first Monday in October, um, two days from now, the uh, third branch of government will reconvene and uh, start exercising its judicial power.
1: Yes, it will. and But there'll be something a little missing from that third branch of government. There'll be nine chairs and eight justices, correct? Right. One empty <laughs> chair without a robe. <laughs> so we're still dealing with the death of Antonin Scalia, which happened, well, I guess, not, not quite a year ago. Uh, we've had a nominee, Merrick Garland, that has been nominated by the president under the constitutional requirement that the president shall nominate individuals for the vacancies to the U.S. Supreme Court. And then there's the second half of that sentence of the U.S. Constitution that says, with the advice and consent of the Senate. So, Michael, what's going on with the advice and consent of the Senate? And you, you know I'm about to go on a mini-rant on this, but go ahead. I'll let you go first. Sure. <laughs>
2: uh, first of all, I should say that I have volunteered several times to fill the empty seat. And, <laughs> you know, surprisingly. Um, you would be well I, qualified. I, I, I think so, but <laughs> apparently the president is neither listening <laughs> nor is the um, Congress um, thirsty for my candidacy. Um, yeah, you, you know, you're about to bash Congress, and I think that's a great thing.
1: Uh, I'm going to bash the president a little bit, too, for not pushing his nominee a little harder. I so I'm going equal opportunity basher today. Absolutely. And, you know, th- therein
2: lies the point. Bash both branches of government. Um, you know, we're talking about a process. That's political. It's a political process. And criticism often arises through political deadlock. And It should the people are the ones who are responsible for electing those who are either complying with their wishes or not complying with their wishes and deadlock typically brings those issues to the forefront. The fact of the matter is, however, that our constitution very carefully Creates three separate branches of government. That's right. And separates the powers. Executive, the
1: legislative, and the judiciary. That's right. So here we
2: have all three of them in play. All three. And when you're talking about the judiciary, you're talking about lifetime appointments. That's right. That our, every
1: one of these federal appointments, they're on for life. They're on for life, which is why we have three of them right. who are in their 80s. Right. And <laughs> once on,
2: there's no political accountability outside of an impeachment process, and that is rare. That's right. So, these are these are very this is a careful delicate balance of the separation of powers that has emerged the the death of justice scalia emerged in an election year i get that and then it's that. not that surprising to have the president and congress at a little a little bit at odds in an election year for an appointment that will uh, or for a president that that will have a lot of appointments by all for Intense the next president. Purposes. That's
1: right. Whoever's right. elected president. in November is going to have, depending on whether Merrick Garland is still an open seat, they, they're definitely going to have one. They could have as many as four in their, in a four- or eight-year term, which is really quite extraordinary. You have to go back to what, FDR, before there was that kind of an influence on the court. Yeah, FDR. And FDR, by the way, threatened to
2: actually expand the court and appoint uh, up to 16 justices to get his majority And uh, when Justice Owens did the famous switch in time that saved nine. Uh, Justice <laughs> Owens decided to switch his position on New Deal legislation as it came up uh, for constitutional review, and that likely saved the nine we have currently.
1: Um, well, here's my problem with it, and then we'll move on to what's actually going to be decided. But my problem is it's it, the I, the irony just just grabs me on this because... You know the missing justice, the empty seat is Antonin Scalia. And whereas Scalia and I may not have agreed substantively, substantively on on everything, right? Only Wagner agreed with Scalia on <laughs> <in> everything. <laughs> and since he's not here today, we can pick on it. <laughs> That's him for why that. I said it. Uh, but but you know Scalia was clear about one thing: it's the clear language of the law. If there was one thing that he repeated over and over for his entire career, it's the clear language of the law. It's as it's written. It should be taken literally, and the literal language says, the president shall nominate, and the Senate shall provide advice and consent. And advice and consent is an active action. It's It's not a a confirmation. It's confirmation. It requires action. It requires confirmation. That's right. But it doesn't say when. It doesn't say when, but there must, there's a reasonableness factor, so I guess... That's you're implying. I'm implying that sometime within 300 days is a reasonable expectation. When it comes to Congress,
2: (laughs) the most deference, theoretically, ought to be afforded that body because it is closest to the people in a two-year cycle of an electorate of a House of Representatives. Now, the the Senate is the confirming body, but one-third of the Senate is up for election every two years. You will not find a body of politicians closer to the people and the people's control
1: than Congress. That's exactly right, and I don't believe that you would find in fact, the polls have said that the, the people would like action. They're not, they may differ on what the action is. Some may think Merrick Garland should be a Uh, approved, confirmed uh, some things he shouldn't. I'm not saying who should be picked. I'm not even promoting Merrick Garland, although he's clearly an extraordinary candidate for the court. But it's, it's not the individual candidate. It's the not even having a hearing.
2: You know, there's something to that, Mitch. Uh, it, it, for, in order for the people to be able to make their political decisions about this body that we call Congress, this body that, of legislatures, they that ought to have, be able to watch them do something, right? That you, do something, <laughs> vote up or down. That's Nobody exactly says right. you have to confirm the guy.
1: That's exactly right. That but, is my point. Put the process in motion. They it, should have not. They should have hearings, and they should take a vote. If they don't like him, vote him down. If there's enough time, the president can make another nominee. They They can have a hearing, they can vote him down. They can vote them down for a year or two. They have that authority. But I don't believe that they are entitled under their oath of office to do nothing I don't believe that's allowed. You don't like it. Oh, but, no, no. I don't believe legally they can do it. I think
2: legally they can. Okay. I, now uh, we've got
1: uh, a difference uh, of opinion.
2: I do think <laughs> legally they can. And I think that the answer to behavior of Congress, that is... Uh, w- th- there's no question the behavior of not holding the hearing is political gamesmanship that is hurting the process. Right. No, No question about that. The problem is that when it comes to self-governance, Congress gets large latitude. Uh, and I don't disagree Under with the that. Constitution. And the cons- and the court usually has this doctrine, Mitch, by the way, called the political question doctrine, where the court does not like to tell Congress or the president how to govern themselves in the spheres of power that the Constitution dedicates to those different branches of government. So we'll, the, the funny thing is our disagreement on this will never
1: be resolved. Well, of course not. The irony that I like to think about is if Scalia were still sitting on this court and if this issue were brought to this court, I don't think there's any difficulty in deciding what they would say. I I mean, you say they've got caution on on the political questions but I believe they would say that Congress has to act and I think they have Cong- to hold the hearings. and I think Congress would look across the back <laughs> of
2: their building to this much smaller building across the plaza and say pound sand <laughs>
1: <laughs> so let's talk about we're gonna we're, we've kind of warned wormed our way close to the first break here but uh, let's let's we're gonna have to talk about a couple things I think there are they're Dozens of cases coming up in this term. I think you've highlighted four or five that we're going to talk about after the break. But but also we're going to have to talk about the effect of this being a four four court for some unknown period of time, and that's going to make a difference, isn't it?
2: It is going to make a difference. And to, you know, to go back to this Merrick Garland point, this is where there's a real harm to the court. You're harming another institution. Um, there's no real entitlement that there be nine judges but there have been nine and the advantage to nine is that it breaks a deadlock and deadlocks resulted in no decision they essentially leave the lower court decision there without there actually being a decision on the law that four justices have have indicated is a significant enough constitutional problem to be decided that's harm to the process really and really why judges should be confirmed if they're qualified
1: well we're going to come we're going to come back to that after this break you're listening to wagner and winnick on the law don't go away <laughs>
3: Deciding to go to law school brings up questions like, can I afford it? Will I be prepared to take the leap and open my own office when I graduate? I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true with professors who are practicing attorneys and judges. They mentor our graduates. But don't take it from me. Hear what recent graduate Creighton Mandeville says.
4: I wasn't crippled in debt coming out of Monterey College of Law. I came out of it with no debt. I was able to do so. some working during that time, and some savings. So I exited law school with no debt. I did feel prepared coming out of law school. I started helping friends with the issues that came up for them. And Monterey
3: College of Law has so many great faculties and things that there were resources for me. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000. That's 582-4000. Or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu.
5: For 45
4: years, the Boys and Girls Clubs of Monterey County have been a vital part of our community. The club's mission is to inspire and empower the youth of Monterey County to realize their full potential to become responsible, healthy, productive, and successful citizens. As just one of the club's programs, more than 12,000 children and families have enjoyed safe after-school care at the Boys and Girls Clubs Salinas Clubhouse. The Boys and Girls Club of Monterey County is very excited to announce that Monterey College of Law is providing one full tuition law school scholarship each year to a former Boys and Girls Club participant. For more information about this exciting opportunity, contact President and CEO Donna Ferrero at dferrero at bgmc.org
1: or call 831-757-4412. Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S.gov. Are you ready to start law school
4: now? If you have just graduated from college or just thinking of changing your career, Now is the time to take that first step. Slow College of Law is accepting applications for May 2016. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School, founded 43 years ago. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. Their highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evenings, and the campus is conveniently located in downtown San Luis Obispo. Let the professionals show you you how to make becoming a lawyer a reality. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an information session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admission Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org.
1: Back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitch Winnick, President and Dean of Monterey College of Law. I'm joined here today by international lawyer and constitutional law professor Michael Cohen. And we are talking about the upcoming Supreme Court term that we now realize is going to start with only eight justices. So with that start, it looks to me, Michael, like the there's a lot of cases here, but... If you sum it all down, we've got the death penalty, we've got First Amendment rights, and we've got race. Yep. Some things just never
2: change. Every Supreme Court term <laughs> is going to show all of those... Uh, categorical areas. Uh, I think that's the current moment of the nation
1: So let's and the past moment of the nation, as you point <laughs> and out. And the
2: future moment. So, so where should we start? What would you like to start with? Let's start with death penalty. I, okay, I, that's an know, up, upbeat topic. It, well, it always is. <laughs> and what's interesting about the death penalty cases uh, categorically, Mitch, before we get into the substance of the two that are before the court, one that uh, touches California and Monterey County in particular and I'll I'll get to that. But what's really interesting about the death penalty to me right now is that two terms ago, two justices came out and said they do not believe the death penalty is constitutional under the 8th Amendment. That's never happened before. And it goes to show you that this election is likely to result in a president who makes appointments that could potentially change the constitutionality of the death penalty in this nation,
1: and the Eighth Amendment being the the prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment, and that's, that's right. where the nexus of the discussion of the death penalty has been from the very beginning. That's absolutely right, and we see death penalty cases on the agenda
2: uh, each year. They are often split 4-4, but not not always. Um, um, or very close in the Scalia days to 5-4 one way or the other. Um, the, so again, the death penalty cases here have that and stand that potential to potentially be 4-4 four, four splits, no matter what the subject matter of them is, um, based on uh, sort of the historic uh, polar polarization on that topic on the court. Okay, so tell us, which. there's a couple of cases that are highlighted in death penalty. Let's let's talk a little about them. Uh, sure. The first, uh, Buck v. Davis um comes uh, comes to the court. Uh, Fifth Circuit, my old stomping grounds. Yeah, all the death penalty cases are from Texas. You'll like that, <laughs> Mitch. What a surprise. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes they go from Georgia and Florida and California, but they're right. Texas this year. Right. Buck v. Davis. Um, uh, Mr. Buck had the privilege of court-appointed counsel who is generally known and called the worst death penalty counsel in the United States. This gentleman has lost 21 death penalty cases and in each case that he's lost, his client has been sentenced to death. And in this case, the lawyers introduced an expert who admitted on the stand that his own study uh, showed the defendant was more likely to commit a future violent crime because of his race. Not only was the study controversial, but it was the defense who introduced this study that didn't help the uh, African-American
1: defendant. So here we have death penalty and race, which has, oh, has frequently been an issue involved in the disproportionate treatment of uh, involvement of race in death penalty decisions. Absolutely. And they, fre- they frequently go together. So we, we have an ineffective
2: assistance of counsel claim. There's all types of procedural issues in this case. Um, the government, of course, uh, I shouldn't say of course, but the government says, yep, that happened, but uh, wouldn't have mattered. Plenty of other evidence to show the defendant's propensity for violence in the future. By the way, this was a defendant who shot. Uh, and killed uh, a mom and her sister in front of the two children because of a domestic dispute.
1: So what what's your guess as to what, how, what what can we learn from how the court has grappled with this in the past that you would think may be applied to this? Because this, this seems to have some pretty classic questions of it, it does come. Yes, he was convicted, but if the error or the ineffective assistance of counsel wasn't if it didn't affect the outcome, then it stands, right? But if there may have been a question as to whether it would have come down, down the other way, they're going to send it down and, and theoretically he could be granted a new trial, I assume, all the way back down to the trial court.
2: Absolutely. My, my prediction is four, four, four justices will vote to uphold the state's conviction. Two justices will vote against the state's conviction and then two justices will be undecided and those justices very likely could f- find or vote to overturn the verdict based on the admission of the testimony, not because of their political views, but because in Texas, the key factor for sentencing under the death penalty is future for propensity for violence. And here, the ineffective assistance of counsel put in record testimony that the defense's own expert believed this witness would have a propensity for violence because of his race. Even though the expert ultimately concluded differently it was quite difficult after the study was admitted. So I think there's a good chance for a four to four deadlock on okay. this one.
1: And Uh, To what extent, we talked a little about race, but to to what extent do you think it's the racial aspect of this that will have some influence? So the argument is ineffective assistance of counsel with an expert that testified as to the propensity for violence. Does it matter why?
2: It does. The the racial component of it's huge. In fact, the state attorney general in Texas has already invited appeals based on this expert's testimony in eight other cases, but not this one. Uh, inviting appeals where the, there was not uh, other substantial right. evidence of propensity for violence in the future.
1: All right. So that'll be a marquee case. We've got another death penalty case, another Texas death penalty case, Moore v. Texas. So how, what, what angle is that going to take? This on? is a great case. So under the
2: Texas sentencing statute for the death penalty, Mitch, mental disability disqualifies a convicted defendant from being sentenced to death. You cannot sentence to death in Texas the mentally incompetent. Right, that wasn't
1: always the case. Was
2: not always the case. That's right, that has changed in relatively recent years. What's fascinating in Texas is the standard for mental disability isn't necessarily scientific or technical and absolutely has nothing to do With current standards in most states, which are medically diagnosed bases for some determination of mental disability. In Texas, it's a common law standard that originated in the 90s and worked its way up to the highest courts in Texas. And it is based in substantial part on a judge who took the characteristics of Lenny, John Steinbeck's character, in
1: Of Mice and Men. Ah, so that's how you brought it right back around to our local issue here in Salinas. All right. Everything comes <laughs> back to
2: Monterey County and then some things come back to Santa Cruz County and San Luis Obispo County, but only because they neighbor Monterey County. right? Yeah. So um, uh, the Lenny standard, as it's been uh, called, is really up for review. And the question the court will have to decide is whether or not Texas can have this Standard that's developed on the common law and is historical and is not reflective of current scientific standards uh, and is in part based on a fictional character from a John Steinbeck uh, short novel or short story, depending on how you look at it. Um, uh, and uh, uh, Mr. Moore uh,
1: stands to um, die or not based on that decision. So I think people find that pretty fascinating there. The assumption is that scientific testimony is somehow binding or authoritative but after we come back from this break we're going to pick up right there Uh, listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law my guest today is Michael Cohen constitutional law professor and we're talking about the new supreme court term don't go away we'll be right back
3: The on to Monterey College of Law is not hard and we have a financial plan and class schedule that is tailored to meet your needs. I'm Wendy law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true without crippling you with debt on graduation day.
6: I chose Monterey College of Law because I wanted to continue working during the day. I had children at home and I wanted to be able to go to school at night where it wouldn't impact what my children needed from me. There really is not crippling debt that you face afterwards. Monterey College of Law has a payment plan which is manageable and they work with you. The other huge benefit of Monterey College of Law is that the professors are judges and lawyers. By taking their classes, you really actually start networking.
3: So I was very fortunate because I also ended up with a mentor. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. For decades, the students at Monterey College of Law have graduated and gone on to pass the bar and become successful attorneys. However, not everyone goes to Monterey College of Law to become an attorney. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. We also offer students our two-year Master of Legal Studies degree, which can enhance their chosen careers.
4: I was working as a deputy coroner for San Mateo County as a death scene investigator, and I wanted a better idea of the legal issues that were involved in forensic investigations. Everything about Monterey College of Law was accommodating to the uh, course of study I was trying to find. I graduated from Monterey College Of law with no outstanding debt. I'm working as an investigator for the San Mateo County Private Defender's Office performing indigent defense investigations.
3: For more information, call us today at 582 4000. That's 582 4000. Or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu.
1: If you are a small business owner, you're subject to many of the same laws and regulations that apply to large corporations. Where do you go for help? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Sba.gov is the website published by the Small Business Administration. It provides a wealth of information for small business owners, including employment and labor law, intellectual property law, online business laws and regulations, environmental regulations, workplace safety, and foreign worker eligibility. Of course... SBA.gov is not a replacement for having your own business attorney, but it is a free resource that may help you realize when you need to consult an attorney. SBA.gov
3: have you thought about a law degree? Did you know you can attend an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo? And you can begin classes in May or in August. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of San Luis Obispo College of Law. San Luis Obispo College of Law is a branch of Monterey College of Law, an accredited law school established 44 years ago. At San Luis Obispo College of Law, we have convenient evening classes, Mondays through Thursdays from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. We have a tuition rate guarantee program that frees your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. We also have payment programs that allow you to make monthly payments or apply for private student loans. At San Luis Obispo College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. If you've been thinking about a law degree, find out now if San Luis Obispo College of Law is your law school. Attend one of our information sessions and get answers to your questions. Or call me, Wendy Law Revere at 805 430
1: It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar. But have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitch Winnick, President and Dean of Monterey College Law. I'm joined today by Constitutional Law Professor and Shepard Mullen and International Lawyer Michael Cohen. And we're talking today about Supreme Court cases because this coming week is the new term for the U.S. Supreme Court. Michael, we were just talking about the impact of scientific testimony in this case or a scientific standard that was used in an expert witness. Testimony for the death penalty, and in this case, it happened to address whether someone wasn't wasn't mentally competent or was uh, mentally incompetent. And and I think I was about to say that I think people are surprised that that kind of scientific evidence, scientific evidence, isn't just taken on its face as fact, is it?
2: No, no. Experts disagree over these things, and scientific conclusions, if you will, are oftentimes expert opinions based on some set of facts, particularly on this question of mental competency. Florida used to have sort of a bright line rule. If you have an IQ of 70 or below, you were mentally incompetent and anything above you were competent. So, but how do you know, uh, first of all, an IQ test could be off by two or three points. And so how do you tell the folks who are, have an IQ of 72 that they're bound for the chair and those who have an IQ of 69, you you get to not right. be bound for the chair. It's kind of, you know, even science can have an arbitrariness to, to it.
1: So. And in these cases, ultimately a jury decides. Ultimately right? a jury decides. So they listen to the scientific testimony and they say, well, we're going to either apply it or not to this case.
2: Absolutely. Take the Lenny standard itself in right. Texas, which was designed to give latitude to experts around a set of criteria that uh, are characteristic of somebody who is not mentally competent. Um, First, Lenny is not exactly a fictional character. Steinbeck said that he based that character on an actual occurrence where a mentally incompetent person that fit the description of Lenny tried to kill a Monterey County ranch hand and, in fact, went to jail for it. Um, A lot of other folks think that if you take the Lenny standard and apply it to Lenny, the fictional character... People are, are unclear on how it would come out. Half the scientists or, or psychologists or psychiatrists would say Lenny goes to the chair, and another half might say Lenny doesn't.
1: Wow. Well, that's an interesting thing for people to keep in mind while, they, while we hear these arguments and we listen to what the Supreme Court decides or doesn't decide, as the case may be in this current term. I, we, and we have to say that with all the cases, don't we, exactly It Decides right. or doesn't decide. And it could then, as you said earlier, it's important for people to remember that it's not easy to predict what that outcome will be because it reverts at a 4-4 tie, it reverts back, and the lower court decision stands Whichever side of the argument it's on Right Right. And so that's where we saw in this past term That there were some conflicting cases Because two four four ties The lower court's decisions Were actually on opposite sides of the issue Therefore it remains unresolved we assume it'll come back at some later date to the court. Absolutely, and some big ones, including a, a First Amendment case. Well, let's talk a little about the First Amendment and uh, Trinity Lutheran Church of Columbia. Tell us a little about that case. Oh, this is a fascinating case um,
2: based on a Blaine Amendment, which is a his- historical nomenclature for state Constitutional amendments that precluded state treasury money being used for religious purposes.
1: Okay, so it's a state constitutional amendment. So Correct. It's a state issue. It's okay. a
2: sta- state issue, but it tracks the for the constitutional. Um, Establishment Clause under the United States Constitution First Amendment which has a similar provision that basically precludes state treasury money being used for religious purposes and there are carve-outs and exceptions. For example, textbooks can potentially be used for a parochial school so long as they are tailored to non-religious purposes and there are some other exceptions to that as well. So what did Trinity Lutheran Church want to do? Well, the state of Missouri had a Statute that essentially made available used tire shreddings for playground
1: material. So here we have a, this is a constant, a U.S. Supreme Court case that's going to go. That's going to be decided based on the use of playground material. Playground material.
2: Yeah, which is not uncommon. This is great. <laughs> the, these cases should come up this way. This is the human experience. Think about it. Missouri has a statute that is basically a win-win. They they encourage instead of tires going into a trash dump, right. they encourage
1: tires to be shredded and then they recycle those tires. And any little pellets at the bottom. Right? right. When our kids were young, they pers- were starting to put those into all the municipal playgrounds. Pers- pers-
2: precisely. And and they're much uh, better for, they're be- better for the kids. And, and Missouri would essentially give this material away. you essentially bought it and got a credit for it right. for any playground. And the, the statute essentially allows anybody, you know, any municipality, any you know, to, to essentially apply for uh, a grant, if you will, to get some of this material and lay it out on the playground. But the statute expressly disallows religious, organizations from uh, participating in that program because of the Blaine Amendments. And uh, that raises an establishment clause question as to whether or not the establishment clause really does prevent this kind of entanglement, this kind of use of state treasury money, if you will, for a preschool playground. The Lutheran Trinity Church is a church it's not a, but it runs a daycare and sure. runs a preschool. Right, it has a playground not for its Sunday mass, but right. for the school and the the daycare and the preschool uh, that it, that it runs. And it's applied for that grant and has been excluded and told it can't have that money. On the one hand, the government says, "Hey, we're not saying that you can't have a religious school or a daycare or preschool. We're just saying that we can't pay for that if you're a religious organization." You have to fund all of that yourself. So
1: it's, so it's it's framed on this argument of playground equipment or the or the materials used in a playground, but it has bigger issues, doesn't it? Has it, much bigger issues. These are the because a Supreme Court case once it's determined can be used as precedent on other things. Right. So this isn't really just about playground equipment.
2: No, this is this case is actually about when the state which ha- states which have Grant money available can use state treasury money for parochial school purposes. For anything. Right. Okay. I, I, that's that's, that, that's what it comes down to and uh, the the case has a very interesting angle to it that's that's quite fascinating not only is it a First Amendment case it's also a 14th Amendment case. And tell everyone what's the 14th The Amendment. 14th Amendment was passed after the Civil War it's one of the Reconstruction Amendments and it actually changed the structure of the Constitution it allowed states to be sued for violation of uh, for discrimination if you will again, uh, on the basis of race, national origin, or religion. And there's an enforcement clause in the 14th Amendment. There's also an equal protection clause. The equal protection clause says you can't discriminate uh, against people on the basis of race, national origin or religion. religion. Right. And so the church here is saying, hey, we're the only people who can't get grant money. Right. We're being discriminated against on the basis of religion. Colorado had a statute that was stricken down. Basically, it was a statute that said um, uh, uh, people who are, have same-sex preferences are not entitled to be a suspected class. And the court, the Supreme Court, struck that statute down under the Equal Protection Clause saying to Colorado, hey, you can't pass a law that defines some group and their legal rights differently than what they may otherwise be. And so here, the Lutheran Trinity Church has, based on that same argument, raised a 14th Amendment claim that says you can't define a category of folks based on the fact that they're churches and deny them something that's available to anybody and everybody else
1: so it's, is it fair to say that prior to Scalia's death the court the supreme court had been moving in the direction of granting greater protection to religion yes
2: I think that the, the court would prior to Scalia's death would have somehow found a way for this church to get the plague uh, the tires so here's another case where
1: with a f- eight member court it, it's unknown this is a really close case very good. Well, we'll keep an eye on that one. Let's, let's talk about, you know, it's football season, so we have a case that on the face of it you might not think has a football relationship, but this is the case of Lee V. Tam. And we have enough time to, to just get started on it, and then we'll carry it on after the break. But tell us a little about Lee V. Tam.
2: Yeah, so Lee V. Tam is a, is a case about a band called The Slants okay. Okay, in Oregon. And this band, The Slants in Oregon, wanted to trademark their name. That's
1: As we had Dave LaRiviere talking about intellectual property and trademarks just a couple weeks ago, and we explained that that would be a perfectly normal thing to do. Yeah, good band, good name,
2: protect right. it, right? Okay. So they applied for a trademark to the United States Patent and Trademark Office, and the United States Patent and Trademark Office said, nope, we don't trademark disparaging names, and we think slants is disparaging to the Asian community. No trademark.
1: Aha, so here's where the Washington Redskins come into the question. So after this break, we will come back to this discussion. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. This is Mitch Winnick joined by Michael Cohen. Don't go away, we'll be right back.
3: Making a change in career is a serious decision that affects both you and your family. You have many questions that need to be answered before you can make a commitment. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true, and it's affordable. But don't take it from me. Hear what recent graduate Dan Cullum says.
4: Before I was entering law school, I was an airline pilot. After I retired, I decided that I would go to law school. Monterey College of Law was the avenue to fulfill that desire. I loved Monterey College of Law. It was small classes. The professors were very helpful, personal. You could talk to them. Tuition is not exorbitant at Monterey College of Law, which is the opposite of the way it is at other places. It's affordable. They have a a program at Monterey College of Law that lets you pay as you go. So it's financially possible.
3: There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at
5: montereylaw.edu. Long before Woody's Cruise Beach Street, kids and teens have needed to know that they are important and that they belong. Since 1969, the Boys and Girls Club of Santa Cruz has provided a place where potential is released and great futures are forged. Help celebrate our 45th anniversary by emailing your club memories and pictures to celebrate 45 years at boysandgirlsclub.info or call 423-3138, extension 23. We are also excited to announce that Monterey College of Law is providing one full tuition law school scholarship each year to a former Boys and Girls Club participant. Contact Executive Director Bob Langseth at 423-3138, extension 21, or email bob at boysandgirlsclub.info to learn more about this exciting opportunity. Consumer scams, fraud,
1: deceptive business practices. Where do you go for protection? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. FTC.gov is the website published by the Federal Trade Commission. As the nation's consumer protection agency, the FTC wants to know about businesses that cheat people out of money. If you've been the victim of consumer fraud, you should file a complaint at ftc.gov. Although the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection will not help you recover your individual damages, your complaint may initiate an investigation that results in companies or individuals being sued by the government for fraud, deceptive practices, or unfair business practices. If you want more information about how to protect yourself as a consumer, go to the Bureau of Consumer Protection at ftc.gov.
6: Are you ready to start law school now? If you've just graduated from college or are thinking of changing your career, now is the time to take that first step. Slow College of Law is accepting applications for May 2016. San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School founded 43 years ago. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. Their highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evenings and the campus is conveniently located in downtown San Luis Obispo. Let the professionals show you how to make becoming a lawyer a reality. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an information session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions, Wendy Law Revere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org.
1: The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We're talking about the U.S. Supreme Court. We've got the October session of this term of the U.S. Supreme Court starting this coming week and we have Michael Cohen, international lawyer with Shepard Mullen and a constitutional law professor here to help us understand what's going on with the court. We've been talking about some specific cases. Uh, Michael, we were just about talking about Lee v. Tam. So here we had the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office refuse to grant a trademark to a band called The Slants because they thought it was disparaging to Asians and the, they're challenging it and saying what? They're saying, hey,
2: you know, we've got the First Amendment right to call our band whatever we want. And right. who are, are
1: you y- to tell us this is disparaging or
2: right, not? Right, and you're 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 basically exempting us or telling us we can't get commercial protection that's available to everybody else under the Lanham Act, a federal statute, for our band name. And the band is Asian American, as you might e- expect. So right. you're really likely not picking a name that's disparaging to them. And the federal government says, hey, you, you know, you can call your band whatever you want, but we don't have to, from the federal government perspective, confer some commercial right to that speech that's protected. It pits the First Amendment against the, the Lanham Act in a pretty direct way. The Redskins case. So it's really the flip
1: side because up until recently, they did have copyright prote- and trademark protection of the name, the, the team name, Washington Redskins.
2: Absolutely. In a federal district court, Um, has held that the Redskins cannot have protection for that name. That case is up on appeal to the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. And interestingly, the Redskins have applied to skip the Fourth Circuit appeal and decide their fate directly on the Lee v. Tam case because all agree that the Redskins' fate will... Um, have, a similar, uh, have yeah. the same issue and, and, and fall on it. The Supreme Court hasn't decided whether it will take that case and it has the power to take that case and it does. decide on both. I,
1: you know, honestly, I didn't realize that. Yeah. So they can, if, so if the, the appellant requests then this, it's a, I assume it's a motion to, directly to the Supreme Court to take it, bypass the... Certificate
2: Sur- of Appeal is what they're asking for. Wow. Yeah. Uh,
1: is that granted very often?
2: Not often, <laughs> but it can when the court takes a case and there are other cases that are pending that it may not know or identify with. This one probably did, but they may not know it. They can they can pull them together,
1: and uh, I suspect the Supreme Court is familiar with the issues with the Washington Redskins. It's hard to <laughs> you not be familiar with the issues
2: that have to do with the Capitals, the Nationals, or the Redskins when you sit fairly close to where they play. Yeah,
1: that's exactly right. You know, do they? Is it a conflict of interest if they go to a game? I don't think so. Can they waive a pennant?
2: I think they can. (laughs) They have First Amendment rights as well. You can root for the Redskins and still (laughs) uphold your constitutional duties. (laughs) I encourage everyone to do that.
1: (laughs) All right. So that'll be, that's going to be an interesting case because not as much that it will set great precedent and affect most of our day-to-day lives, but, but it has been a case, the Washington Redskins case has been very important to Native Americans and Uh, it too could have some some ongoing impact. It absolutely could. This this is
2: actually a widespread commercial impact to this case. There are an awful lot of sports brands that are centered around what the teams would likely call the noble or warrior-type aspects of Native Americans, from tribal names... Um, to things like the, the Atlanta Braves or the Cleveland Indians or sure. all kinds of things that way. They're, they weren't necessarily picked for disparagement. I mean, it would be kind of odd to pick a team name that was disparaging, um, but to a certain segment of people uh, who are Native American, they feel the perpetuation of those images from the past yep. and stereotypes are. And they feel very strongly about it. And um, Whether or not the, com- the federal government will give commercial trademark protection to those things under the First
1: Amendment, uh, is, it's really quite uh, fascinating. We'll see where it goes. Okay, so before we run out of time, I know you've been picking on Texas here tonight. There are a couple of Colorado cases, aren't there? So it's not just Texas that's generating consternation at the constitutional law level.
2: No, it's not. Colorado has perpetually been before the court lately. In fact, between Texas and Colorado, I'm feeling a little neglected as a Californian. (laughs) We've got to get going here. <laughs> we're historically the state that puts a lot of stuff up there, but we seem to be, you know, not doing anything lately. Maybe we're
1: just doing it the right way. Oh, I
2: don't, but that, when was California ever built to do things the right way? <laughs> we're supposed to push the envelope on the right way, and it's supposed to be controversial. All right, Colorado's so what's going on with that.
1: Colorado, there's two cases. What, this is Renee, Re, Pena Rodriguez v. Colorado, and what's this, Nelson v. Colorado. Nelson v. Colorado. Colorado.
2: These are great cases, both criminal cases, and Pena Rodriguez versus Colorado. The question is whether or not confidential information about the jury deliberations that show clear racial prejudice can be used to overturn the conviction uh, based on a defendant's Sixth Amendment right to an impartial jury. Yeah, I thought this was a fascinating case. Historically, Mitch, uh, whatever goes on in that jury room goes on in the jury room. There's no overlooking it, and, and the jury can come up with whatever it wants on whatever basis it wants. We all saw 12 angry men, there so you we know what's going on That's there. That's right. And in this case, they had a former police officer, uh, and the defendant was a Mexican citizen, and his American uh, presence is questionable, right. is, his, is his right to be here. Uh, c- committed a... a uh, crime, misdemeanors. I, I should I th- say. I thought
1: that was interesting as well. Three misdemeanors yeah. involved here.
2: Three misdemeanors. So we're really, you know, misdemeanors are trap. Traffic offenses are misdemeanors for our right. listenership. They range, but they're generally regarded as not serious crimes um, and the, f- the former police officer foreman of the jury uh, indicated that he thought the defendant did it because he was Mexican and that he thought one of the witnesses was lying because they were Mexican and he he, he uh, was very uh, uh, he voiced the, these opinions very very loudly and certain jurors uh, informed the defense counsel about it and the defendant saying, hey, I'm Mexican and basically this guy decided against me because I'm Mexican and that violates my
1: right to an impartial jury. I've so the real question is, can the, the post-trial in uh, inquiry kind of pierce the sanctity of the jury room right. and use that as a basis for appeal. That's right. Well, Michael, it's, I can't believe it. This hour is gone, but we will have to come back as the term goes along and talk about more of these cases. Thank you very much for being our guest today. Great to be here. I look forward to the next time. You've been listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. You can hear an archive of today's show on voiceamerica.com and wagnerandwinnick.com as we encourage you every week on this show. If you don't know the law, know a lawyer.
4: answering your questions and discussing your personal rights within the legal system. Law School Dean Mitchell Winnick, along with law professor Stephen Wagner, will discuss the sometimes ever-changing laws and policies to keep you in the know. Listen every Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Business. If you don't know the law, know a lawyer.